Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Tonight I want to do something a little bit different. I would like to talk to you about praying for an awakening or praying for revival. So when we're talking about awakening or revival, uh, some people would use the word interchangeably. I would tend to see an awakening as something that happens in a society. In other words, it sweeps not only a town, but a region. It may sweep uh, a country. A revival, on the other hand, I tend to see as more localized to a church. So Charles Finney, the great revivalist back in the 1800s, uh, said a church needs revival when it's lost its passion for the lost, when it no longer has people praying. He gives like a list of signs that a church needs revival. So I see revival as really being related primarily to a church being revived, being renewed to a place of spiritual vitality. But If people want to call an awakening a revival, um, I'm not going to argue semantics, but I just want to explain kind of how I I view it so you would understand why I would use the word awakening. But at the same time, as people write about revivals, I'm sympathetic to them using the name revival. I just care about God moving, okay? So whatever you want to call it, call it whatever. But the upshot is God comes down on a place and dramatically or a region changes the spiritual landscape. And in our country, we've had four great awakenings. Some would say there's more. They would divide it differently. But the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards uh, in Massachusetts preached, a Puritan preacher preaches great message, centers in the hands of an angry God. And it, it launched a great awakening that swept all of New England. In fact, what he did is, and the amazing thing, he's getting ready to preach the sermon. He's so afraid people will be moved by emotion in response to his intonation that he practices preaching the message in a monotone voice so that if anything happens, it will be the Spirit of God. And what happens is, The Spirit of God comes down. People are are literally grabbing onto the pews, afraid they will fall into hell. The revival sweeps all of New England, goes down into the region of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Ben Franklin, who was a deist, wrote that you could not find a street or a block in the city of Philadelphia where people were not singing hymns. It so changed that entire area. George Whitfield was another great preacher, and he was the one who really God used to touch Philadelphia. There was a second great awakening, 1810 to 1840, Peter Cartwright. Uh, This was kind of the Baptist revival. So this is really Anglican uh, had a revival. The Baptists were a part of this. Uh, Charles Finney, uh, was he would have two people go into a town, Uh, Father Nash, Abel, Clary, they would pray for 10 days and they would just shut themselves in a room fast and pray. And by the time Finney would come into the town, there would be just a a hovering presence of God descend on uh, the community, great conviction upon people. Third Great Awakening, 1880 to 1910, which really includes D.L. Moody, 
all the way up to the Azusa Street meetings that really touched the entire world. Uh, a great awakening. Then there was one in 1960 to 1980, uh, the Jesus People Movement. Uh, the charismatic renewal would be another part of that. Interestingly enough, this one preceded by a wave of healing. And some, some who study this say that healing is a precursor to revival as God begins to move. So what I've been doing is I've just read about revivals because I believe that in our country there is a recognition that we need more than some government program can provide. I'm not against the government doing what it can do. But to change the fabric of society, that can only happen not through legislation, but through repentance and a move of God coming into our country. And our country is ready for it. And what's interesting is there is an openness to the moving of the Spirit and it is sweeping cross-denominationally. It's very, very interesting to watch, to talk to people, the places where I've been and, and just even recently, to watch what is happening and how people talk about what is God, God is doing and what people are sensing, that there is coming a move of God that is going to shake this country. I believe that to be true. I think it's important for us to... Uh, you know, if you're interested at all in it, to read about revivals, to find out what happens. I recently read a book about the revival in the Hebrides, which are a group of islands off the coast of Scotland. And from 1949 to 1952, there was an amazing revival so that they said it was hard to find anybody who was not born again. Owen Murphy writes in When God Stepped Down from Heaven this, when men in the streets are afraid to open their mouths and utter godless words lest the judgments of God should fall, when sinners overawed by the presence of God tremble in the streets and cry for mercy, when without special meetings and sensational advertising, the Holy Ghost sweeps across cities and towns in supernatural power and holds men in the grip of terrifying conviction, when every shop becomes a pulpit, when every heart an altar, every home a sanctuary, and people walk softly before God, this is revival. And what happens is the Holy Spirit moves through a, a region and conviction falls on people and people get saved without ever being in the church and then they go to the church. In the Hebrides, the churches were empty. People were not attending church. The prayer meetings were virtually non-existent. And what happened was there was a group of people who started to pray. It doesn't have to be a big group. It was a, a group of about seven people started praying, asking God to send a revival. It was said of that revival, it was just as though God had stepped out of heaven. So the, the heart cry is, Lord, from Isaiah, tear open the heavens and come down. Because the, the solution to the circumstances we face in the country and more specifically in our area, it will require a move of God to solve those things. 
When you look at what's happening, and I, again, I have mentioned this before, but when you look at statistically where our region stands, just in the state, and even in comparison to the nation, you have to say it, it is very unusual. Here we are in the Bible Belt. Here we are in a place where people say, oh, this is the Bible Belt, and depends which city you're on. Everybody calls themselves the buckle on the Bible Belt. But you got all these churches. You've got people that are by and large more conservative socially. And yet, we lead, the, we lead the state in poverty. We lead the state in violent crime. We lead the state in domestic abuse. We lead the state, we lead the state in drug abuse. We lead the state in suicide. Something's wrong. That does not make sense. And if it's not natural, it's supernatural. And I'm suggesting to you that in every one of those areas, there is, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time figuring out what the enemy is doing, but sometimes it's just obvious what he's doing. And so what we need to do is we need to recognize that and say, there, what was the Bible belt, the enemy's delighted in turning into a stronghold of evil. I mean, poverty is an evil. Domestic abuse is an evil. Drug abuse is an evil. People wanting to take their life, that's, that's demonic. It's not natural. And the answer to that is revival. So the question is, how does that happen? What do we do and what should we as a church do? And I think we have a responsibility for our community. We have a responsibility for people that are lost. Not just to hope they come into the church, but to go out and to reach them. And in order to do it on the scale that it needs to be done, the presence of the Lord is going to have to go before us. This is revival. This is awakening. In the Hebrides, they saw four steps to revival. Number one, people must pray out of a conviction that revival is desperately needed. So until you have a conviction, something's got to give. And until you have a desperation in your heart that God is not pleased with what is and that God wants to do something, you'll never really pray the kind of prayer that touches heaven. Just a, a, a mindless, oh God, send revival without it touching your heart is not going to do it. And so in the Hebrides, what happened was this group got together and they began to pray. They had a conviction that it was desperately needed. Number two, people must believe that because they have prayed, God is a covenant-keeping God, will honor his promise to send revival. Do you believe that if you and I pray, God will do something extraordinary? That he'll answer prayer. I mean, listen to this in 2 Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. 
One of the things that happens as people begin to pray for revival, the first place God begins to work is in the hearts of the people who are praying and those near them. He begins to bring a conviction of sin. In other words, people become sensitive to the presence of God and the presence of sin in their life. So God comes and and purifies his church before he purifies the land. So in the Hebrides revival, what happened was they they began to pray. There was a conviction of sin, and people began to to really become sensitive to the Holy Spirit in a new way. And as they were praying, uh, ultimately, they said, listen, we've been praying, and we can tell the Holy Spirit's done a work in us, and God is a covenant-keeping God. And one night, as they were praying in the barn, they asked one guy to pray, and he got up, and he he said this. He said, God, you are a covenant-keeping God. We've done our part, and now you must must do yours. And the place began to shake. And that was the beginning of the revival in the Hebrides. Taking God at his word, being convinced that God answers prayer, being convinced he cares about the lost, being convinced that, that really an awakening or revival is the only solution for people. Number three, people must be willing to let God work in his way. Say, what does that mean? It means don't desire comfort. God's not interested in anybody's comfort. He's interested in moving. And when God moves, I promise you, it will make you uncomfortable. Just will. And when you look at the history of revivals, the the manifestation of what God does in working is very similar, and it always makes people uncomfortable. In the first great awakening, so Jonathan Edwards, he's watching this all go down, and he writes this. He recorded the following extraordinary affections, tears, trembling, groans, loud cries, agonies of the body, the failing of bodily strength, fits, jerks, and convulsions. In fact, critics... And get ready, people will always criticize the move of God. Always that will happen. And so here, this is going on. People are are attacking Jonathan Edwards because this is happening. And, you know, as he looks at it, he decides when he watches what comes out of this, when he sees the holiness, the purity, the devotion to God, the change in people's lives. He said, oh, to be so affected. John Wesley wrote in his journal about a discussion he had with George Whitfield, and Whitfield was a great preacher. He'd go out in the open field and preach to 25,000 people, and the conviction of God would fall, and people were getting saved. He was a huge leader in the First Great Awakening. Wesley writes, he's the founder of Methodism, so... If you are a Methodist, this is in your roots. I had an opportunity to talk with him, George Whitfield, of those outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found his objections were chiefly grounded on gross misinterpretations of matter of fact. But the next day, he had an opportunity of informing himself better. 
For no sooner had he begun to invite all sinners to believe in Christ than four persons sunk down close to him almost in the same moment. One of them lay without either sense or motion. A second trembled exceedingly. A third had strong convulsions all over his body but made no noise unless by groans. And the fourth equally convulsed called upon God with strong cries and tears. From this time, I trust we shall all suffer God to carry on his work in the way that pleaseth him. In other words, Whitfield said, it's nonsense, it's not real, until it happened right in front of his eyes. And Wesley's simply saying, he's saying, listen, when God comes on a person, people respond to that differently. Sometimes it is just a fleshly response to God, but it is a response to God nonetheless. Sometimes it is the Spirit of God doing a deep work in them, and how can you and I understand what God is doing in somebody at that moment? I'm just simply saying, you know, if you got to have everything just, you know, in a super rigid way, and it's got to be just like you like it, and just what makes you comfortable, you're going to find it really hard to be in a move of God. And more important than your comfort or my comfort is the salvation of people who are experiencing the power of God in a way that will transform not only their life, but will transform their family, transform their, transform their home, transform their friends. We're talking about God moving in such power. And when he does that, who knows how that's going to look. But you see a similar thing happening here. And it's happening not with some wild evangelist who's a nut. It's happening with the greats of Christendom. The critics, history's forgotten. We haven't forgotten Jonathan Edwards. We haven't forgotten George Whitfield. We haven't forgotten John Wesley. In the Cane Ridge Revival, which the Baptists, this was a Baptist revival, so if you're Baptist, you see, sometimes people think, well, this is all just Pentecostal thing. No, it spans the denominations because God has worked through his people in a variety of ways, a variety of times and places, but it's looked very similar whenever he does. The Cane Ridge Revival, which the Baptists called the Awakening of 1800, thousands were saved. James Finley, a Methodist minister, circuit writer, wrote this. The noise was like the roar of a Niagara. Vast, a vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. At one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of 1,000 guns had been opened upon them and then immediately followed by shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. And again, what happened is it swept through regions and, and thousands and thousands of people were saved in a way that transformed the country. And this is from a book, Lewis Drummond, The Awakening That Must Come. The fourth thing in revival is a manifestation of the presence of God. That there is at times, not every time, but often, a visible presence of the Lord. Um, certainly, his presence is there in power, but at the Hebrides revival, they said there must be a manifestation of God demonstrating the reality of the divine in operation when men would be forced to say, this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, let me just say this. Anytime God's doing anything, 
God is going to give us enough evidence to believe. But he's not going to give us so much evidence we don't have to believe. So we have to be, we have to, we have to understand that as we're, as we're walking with God through this, there are, there's supernatural things happening. And the problem for us is we are limited to this natural world and God pulls back, as it were, the veil, the curtain, so we see some things, but we can't understand some of those things. And this is true in every revival. Interestingly, there have been times when fire has appeared. So in the last century, it happened in two notable places. It happened at Azusa Street. William Seymour arrived in Los Angeles on February 22nd, 1906, and began to hold meetings at a small storefront church on Santa Fe Street. He was invited to hold a Bible study and prayer meetings at a house on Bonnie Bray. The people on Bonnie, at the house on Bonnie Bray had been praying as a group of women who were praying regularly for a revival, for an, an awakening. William Seymour was supposed to speak at a church on a Sunday morning, and when the church heard what he was going to speak, they banned him from speaking that morning or that evening. He heard about this prayer meeting, showed up at it, and when they, he knocked on the door, and when they opened it, he said, I am here in answer to your prayers. Which, societally in that day, was shocking. Because what you had is you had Anglo women praying, and you have an African-American, a one-eyed African-American man show up. But they believed it. And together they began to pray, and what happened was Seymour called for 10 days of fasting and prayer, and on April 9th, the power of God began to fall. The meetings were moved to a mission on Azusa Street. The power of God was so strong that creative miracles began to occur. Ears that did not exist formed in place. Arms that had been lost due to work accidents were reconstructed by the power of God. As the people prayed in the spirit, a literal fire would come out of the roof of the building, causing onlookers to call the fire department because the building looked like it was burning. This is in the Los Angeles Times. So this is something the secular world saw. But when the fire department came, to, the fire could not be put out. So what would happen is there were times, not every night, not every time. There were times, though, a fire would come up out of the building. Then there were times when a fire would come down from heaven, and there would be a, the, a pillar of fire over that. What does that sound like? Remember when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt? There was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Some of the people who were regulars would know when they saw the fire, people would come running because they knew spectacular things were going to happen. Another manifestation of God was there, there was a fog that was about two and a half feet high that would roll in. There was no explanation for it, but it would be there. And on the nights that there was either the fire or the fog, extraordinary miracles happened. Seymour would point at a group and like one night, there were 30 deaf people. He pointed at the group and said, all of you will receive your healing tonight. It's starting now. Turned and kept preaching, and one by one, they were all supernaturally healed. I mean, there's some really amazing stories, and that spread around the world. And I would suggest to you that the, the missions movement 
of the 20th century essentially came out of Azusa, transformed the world, missions-wise. Millions, hundreds of millions of people are in the kingdom today, and it all goes back to what happened at Azusa Street. Now, we could go on. It's fascinating to read all of that, but the upshot for us is simply this. I just, as God is moving, we're seeing him move. And it's wonderful what we're seeing, but I'm suggesting to you it's a precursor to what is the greatest need of the hour. And the greatest need of the hour, I'm thanking God for every single healing, and there have been some dynamic, powerful healings. Every healing is, is a praise to the Lord. But the great need in the area is for people to come to know Jesus. Always, that's the great need. And I believe God has built our faith and God has visited us for the purpose of moving us closer to him. Everything about what we're seeing should cause every single one of us to say, I want to get as close to Jesus as I can. I want to seek him more. Everything we're seeing should say, you know what? God is working right now. And, and here's the key. Rick Warren used to say this. Um, if you want to be blessed, you want to grow in Christ, find out what God is doing and be a part of it. And God is doing something extraordinary. This is recognized. I mean, it is just people watching what's happening here around the world. So I was in a meeting last week, and uh, somebody who is certainly a world traveler and not, not from the U.S. came up to me and, and said, after we talked, we were talking about other things. I was talking about about their ministry, and we talked for about 20 minutes. And then he said, well, how are you doing? I said, oh, we're doing great. And he said, well, tell me what's happening because the entire world is talking about what God is doing at James River. I said, oh, that's not I said, really? And he said, oh, yeah. So God is stirring here. God is doing something that's extraordinary and unique. We have the opportunity. This is the beautiful thing. We have the opportunity in prayer to advance God's will, God's kingdom, I believe in a way that goes far beyond Springfield. I don't think any of this is about James River. I don't think any of this is about me or necessarily about you. It's about God wants to do something powerful, and God has said, I'm going to visit this place. These people pray. I'm not saying we're the only place. I'm not, that's not a comparative or competitive statement. It's just simply saying, you all praying. And God showed up. And I believe with all of my heart, God wants us to pray for the lost with greater intensity than we have up to this point. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke on binding and loosing, and we looked at Matthew. And if you were not here on New Year's Eve uh, day, you can check out the message. It's up online. But I'm going to ask the people whose, God, whose heart God touches. So let me say this. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. I don't want anybody to feel uh, anything other than what the Lord is speaking to your heart, respond to. But I believe God is going to raise up at every single campus and online people who are going to feel a burden and a passion to pray for revival. More than just what we would do on the prayer meeting. We're going to do it on the prayer meeting. We're going to do it tonight. But would would feel from God, this is a unique opportunity to do what Abraham did when 
God came down to see what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? And God said, their sin is so great, I'm going to destroy the cities. And Abraham in that moment begins to plead for the cities. Something about when you know God and you're walking with God, you care about the eternal destination of people. You care about the hell people live in because you know there is a heaven that's available for them to experience now. And so I'm believing God is touching, is going to grip people's hearts in a way that he's gripped mine to really begin to seek God for revival. Already it's, it, it's happening in the city. There's the World Prayer Center, the Assemblies of God World Prayer Center, and people that attend James River are running it. Joe and Trish Oden are running it, and they're praying for revival. But we can't just say, well, good, they're doing it, and, and say, if it happens, great. I believe God is doing something here, and we're responsible to respond to what God is doing in this place. And we thank God for what he's doing in other places, and we cheer them on. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to move very quickly. Jesus said, I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And so the word there is, uh, it's a gathering. It's people called out, called together. It's people who God has, in the secular Greek, it would be a council. It would be a legislative body. It would be like a a, uh, congress or a senate who would have the ability to, to enact government or to enact the will of a government on a situation. Jesus is saying, I'm going to establish a divine council, and that divine council, I'm going to empower them to advance my kingdom on earth, which is originally why Adam and Eve were put on earth in the first place. God's heart has always been to reclaim and redeem the earth. So he said, hey, here's what heaven on earth looks like in Eden. Now your job is to rule and reign over the whole earth. Multiply and subdue it. And Adam and Eve failed. And so Jesus came back, reclaimed the opportunity for people to be a part of advancing the kingdom of God on earth. That's what revival is. And he says, I'm going to build my counsel, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In, in the Old Testament, gates are the place of decision. Gates are the place where the city council met. There where the king made decisions. You went to the gate. If Boaz is going to marry Ruth, he's going to meet the elders in the gate. It's a, it's a, there are seats in the gate. There's government in the gates. There's decisions in the gates. And he's saying, listen, the decisions of hell, the direction of hell, all the things of hell will not be able to stop it. And then he goes on and says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's telling us, listen, you have the power to unlock some things. You have the power to bring about some things. But a key is only good if you stick it in the lock. We have the keys. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is one of the keys, that there is a, there is a binding and a loosing. You say, what do you mean by that? A.T. Robertson puts it this way. He says, to bind in rabbinical language is to forbid. To loose is to permit. Now, a little bit about binding and loosing. 
It doesn't mean that you and I can run around and bind this and bind that indiscriminately based on what we decide. No, what it means, and look at this. This is a from Charles Williams. This is really a, a good translation of the Greek. I solemnly say to you, whatever you forbid on earth must be already forbidden in heaven. In other words, so when we're going to bind something, if we see that the enemy is doing something, let's, let's apply it to Springfield. If we see that there's poverty in Springfield and it's unusual that we would have, I mean, you think of all the social agencies we have. We have one of the greatest uh, networks of nonprofits ministering to a community in the country. It's really quite shocking, quite astounding to have it in Springfield, and yet still poverty is everywhere. Which tells us something's, something supernatural is happening because it's very unnatural. We know this. We know there's no poverty in heaven, right? No poverty in heaven. So he's saying, whatever you forbid on earth must already be forbidden in heaven. Is poverty forbidden in heaven? What's the answer? Yes. We can bind poverty here. Is domestic abuse forbidden in heaven? Yes, we can bind it here. Is murder, drug abuse, suicide forbidden in heaven? Yes, we can bind it here. In other words, it's the idea of saying, not only are we going to look at it and shake our head and say, what a shame, but we're going to say, no, I'm going to, we're going to come against the powers of darkness in the name of Jesus, and we're going to bind them in Jesus' name. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to do. As well, there's the loosing, whatever, whatever is permitted in heaven, we permit on earth. We're going to lose the power of God. We're going to lose peace. We're going to lose, you know, uh, people walking in purity. This is the idea. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth, same thing. Then he says, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree, how big has the council got to be? It's got to be more than one. So there's a power in agreement. So let me say this. He's talking about his council. Um, he's talking about his church. There's no such thing as a church of one. Got to have more than one person. You say, well, it's just me and God out in nature, and that's my church. Well, that's not church. Biblically, that's not church, and that's foolish. So I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And what's the context for that? It's, the, it's believers carrying out, in this context, church discipline in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, whatever you bind, whatever you forbid, if it's been forbidden in heaven and you forbid it on earth, God recognizes that. God does it. I mean, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. This is amazing. He goes on and says, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. In other words, the idea is that if you and I gather together to pray and to bind the things that are bound in heaven, loose the things that are loosed in heaven, that there is something that happens in the spiritual realm that affects the natural realm. 